Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology, the things it can do for people and the planet, and for understanding where we came from. I'm Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. And today we're going to talk about what we can learn from ancient DNA and what kind of secrets it holds that help us better understand the present. And we're speaking with Dr. Beth Shapiro. She's a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's also an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shapiro. Thanks for having me. I think this is great. I, I think the number of topics that we'll cover today, it's really been looking forward to this one for a while. <laughs> and uh, I should plug your book right off the top. Um, it's Life As We Made It. And... Um, how 50,000 years of human innovation refined and and redefined nature. And it covers one of my favorite topics of this idea of, uh, of you know, domestication and, and learning about where we came from and plants or animals. So let's talk a little bit about th- how you learn what you learn and people in your field learn what you learn from ancient DNA. Why is this an important area to study? So what's cool about ancient DNA, and I like to think of it as a as a technique rather than a field, because you can apply DNA that we recover from plants and animals and even microbes that used to be alive to lots of different questions in evolution, from phylogenetics to population genetics to things like thinking about how um, species and populations and even entire communities responded to perturbations to their habitats, like um, the peak of the last ice age and the rapid warming event after that, or of course, the first introduction of people. And you brought up domestication. One of the things that we can study with ancient DNA is those very early domesticated lineages. So really try to better understand that process. What was it that happened to the wild ancestor of these domestic species? And how did the genomes of these species change through time? Yeah, it's really neat. I think you refer to it in your um, in your book as museum genomics. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. I mean, we yeah. I guess that's a good way of thinking about it. We don't get all of our samples from museums, but museums are super important. You know, paleontologists and geologists have been collecting mostly bones from species that used to be alive for a long time, and there are lots of museums around the world that have amazing collections of things like mammoths and bison and horses, things that we know of today that aren't particularly long gone, um, but that we can get, if we can go into those collections and we take a chunk of bone from these, each of these specimens and grind it up and extract the genetic material that's preserved in there, we can compare that to DNA from animals that are alive today and really get a good idea of how their DNA sequences have changed over time. Well, how far back can you realistically go? And is it really just about DNA or can you maybe extract other things like maybe get some partial protein sequences from things like collagen or things like that? Yeah. So different um, 
molecules, biomolecules pr are preserved for better or worse. So um, initially, in the very early days of ancient DNA, well, the very first ancient ancient DNA that was recovered was from a preserved museum skin of an animal called a quagga. It was only about 100 years old, and it was from some muscle tissue that researchers at Alan Wilson's lab at UC Berkeley had managed to get from a specimen that was in a museum in South Africa. And they extracted DNA and they had to use a process called molecular cloning because PCR and the modern technologies that we have today didn't exist yet. And they were with this, you know, really old school approach compared to what we can do now, really hard and difficult approach compared to what we do now, were able to show that this, this DNA sequence was a close match to a zebra which wasn't particularly revelatory. You know, it was it was obviously a zebra. It looks like a zebra. They used to be alive. People <laughs> saw them when they were alive, right? But this idea that DNA was preserved in something after death was exciting. And it really started this rush to get the coolest and oldest DNA out of whatever. And people were publishing stuff like DNA from dinosaurs and obviously DNA from insects entombed in amber and DNA from old fossils and all of these DNA sequences that were published in reputable scientific journals have one thing in common, these very old ones, and that is that none of them are true. They have not withstood the test of time. <laughs> it turns out that DNA decays actually pretty quickly after death. And it's only in very exceptional circumstances that we get DNA that lasts for very long at all. Um, and those exceptional circumstances include places like the Arctic, where the temperatures are very cold, or the plant or animal might get buried in frozen soil as if it was stuck in a freezer for tens of thousands of years. And even so, the oldest DNA that we were able to recover for a long time was only around forty or fifty thousand years old. So it, it, it and also the as the as the sample gets older, the DNA actually breaks down into smaller and smaller fragments until eventually there's nothing there. This is just by natural processes, UV radiation, the freezing and thawing of water, and also microbes, you know, bacteria and fungi get onto the, the samples, onto the bones and bodies of the things that used to be alive and just chew them up and chew up the DNA. So yeah, for a long time, that was, that was the limit. Um, we broke the record recently. Uh, there was a paper that came out a couple months ago where um, it was with a team of researchers from um, the led by the Natural History Museum in Sweden, a colleague of mine called Lova Dalen. And we managed to isolate and analyze um, complete genome sequences from mammoths uh, that we recovered from teeth that are as old as 1.2 million years. So this is really really pushing what the limit of DNA preservation is and is going to be a very exceptional circumstance or, you know, it's, 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 this is definitely exceptional. But we think that we're pretty sure the DNA is real. It's authenticated. Multiple labs extracted this DNA. It looks like mammoth DNA. It was in terrible shape, really damaged and broken down, etc. But it didn't look like the mammoths that live today. So there's lots of evidence to show that it is real, not not real, like the initial dinosaur sequences were, <laughs> but uh, pretty exciting stuff. That's really a big step from 40,000 years to 1.2 million. So was it the, you mentioned the teeth, and I've heard this before. Is it really just the uh, the teeth are especially good at preserving DNA because of the pulp cavity? Is that what the trick? 
Yeah, no, it's not that. And, you know, it's been a gradual step from about 40,000 to 1.2 million. We've we've had a few things that were in the 700,000 year range. There's some horse bones from the Arctic and Yukon that we've gotten DNA from, whole genomes from that are that are about 700 to 750,000 years. Um, there's a team from, from Germany that got DNA from a cave bear that I think was around 300,000 years. And, you know, some of the older human remains, there have been Neanderthals and Denisovans, um, mostly Neanderthals from different parts of the world that are, you know, somewhere between sixty and hundred thousand years old. So it's gradually stepping back. It, and it's not the the element itself, although there are some exceptions to that. It's more the preservation environment. So you want to be buried somewhere where it's cold and dry and consistently so. So the the best preserved things have come from the high Arctic and from cave sites. Um, and really, that's consistent throughout. If you're buried in a warm and wet spot, the chances that DNA survives, even for you know, a few years or tens of years is pretty limited. I see. So what, what about the other technical aspects of this? Do you have to start with a huge amount of tissue to, so, so you, I think back to the old experiments in the 1970s where they'd purify polymerases or molecules from, yeah. uh, you know, they would start out with 30 kilograms of broccoli to get, <laughs> to get a drop of the polymerase. Does this mean you have to start out with a lot to get some material or are these such rare specimens that you have to really tease apart a tiny bit and then use other amplification methods to actually have a sample to work with? Yeah. Well, this has changed through time, too. And there's been a lot of innovation in this space. Um, earlier on in the field in ancient DNA, people were using larger specimens, larger pieces of specimens. But obviously, you know, paleontologists and museum curators and, and even us, you know, I've stood in front of the precious Oxford dodo specimen wielding a Dremel tool in my hand and looking at this <laughs> only dodo and thinking, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> I'm going to cut something out of this animal. Um, <laughs> but we take we. We can generally start with about half a gram of bone powder, which which isn't very much. You know, it's a, just a tiny little bit. Um, and we've gradually throughout, you know, the last 30 years, because it's a, the first DNA was in 1984. So it's been about 30 years since people started being able to do this first ancient DNA, the quagga, um, gotten better. We uh, More efficient techniques to extract the ancient DNA and purify it from whatever background stuff is in there. And then more efficient ways to... Um, to transform the extracted DNA molecules into molecules that can be sequenced using the technologies that we use today, the Illumina sequencing technologies. In fact, you know, Illumina, I, I don't know how much you've talked about these sequencing technologies on your podcast, but initially they could only sequence extremely short fragments of DNA and loads of people throughout the technology space found this to be kind of off-putting. Oh, it's tiny little fragments of DNA. But for those of us working in ancient DNA, we were like, this is perfect. Our fragments are only 30 bases long, so we don't need anything spectacular. In fact, the Illumina technology was such an advance over PCR because if you need to use this technology where you're amplifying DNA using primers, each of those primers that you design is about 20 DNA letters long. So that's 40 letters just with primers. And then you want to get something that's in between those primers. And 40 base pairs, maybe plus another 20, 60 base pairs. We have loads of specimens where there is no DNA that is 60 base pairs long. So with the advent of next generation sequencing technologies, we went from an enormously limited number of specimens that we could get ancient DNA from to to really opening this up to different parts of the world, different preservation environments, and even older and older specimens, which is one of the reasons that we've able we've been able to extend this back to about a million years. 
That's pretty cool. So when you talked about the mammoth uh, DNA that's there, uh, is there an entire mammoth genome at this point, or does it seem like something that'll happen soon? There are, well... Entire genome is a tricky question, right? Because That's we right. know that uh, when, <laughs> when, when everybody celebrated publishing the complete human genome in, what was it, 2000 and... Or not 99. <laughs> then yeah. it wasn't complete. And recently, there was a team of people that published one chromosome that is actually complete, telomere to telomere, they say. And the problem there is that there's these repeat elements at the two ends and toward the centromere, the middle of the chromosome, that it's just really difficult to get through using existing technologies. And they've been able to do this now using some of the really long sequencing technologies, this Oxford nanopore technologies, where they can get sequences that are as many as hundreds of millions of letters long at a time. And that allows them to span these repeat regions and finally get from one end of the chromosome to the other. So a complete human genome is not yet a thing. So I would be lying if I said, yes, there's a complete mammoth <laughs> genome. But that said, you know, there, there are lots of parts of the mammoth genome that we can put together. And um, using the Asian elephant, who's the closest living relative of the mammoth, as a map, a kind of scaffold, um, People have put together many um, complete mammoth genomes, um, high coverage, good quality mammoth genomes. You know, we have 30, 40 base pair fragments at a time that we line up against the Asian elephant genome. But then, you know, you can line them up next to each other on a computer and you can ask how Asian elephants were different from mammoths and even how mammoths were different from each other. So there are lots of, of ancient extinct organisms and ancient examples of organisms that are still alive, like horses and bison, where we have really good quality, complete genomic data from ancient DNA. Now that's uh, I don't mean to keep drilling down on mammoths because I, but I just think they're so cool. So there's you mentioned different kinds of mammoths or different ones. Do you is there really that much diversity that can be obtained from genetic information that would infer that there were multiple kinds of them, or was that coming from old fossil morphological data? Well, the morphological data was definitely has been used definitely to show that there were multiple species of mammoths that lived, you know, throughout the Pleistocene ice ages, um, toward the end of the last ice age, and then into the Holocene when the only one species of mammoth survived into the Holocene. Um, but prior to that, there were multiple species by morphology, and the genomic data from these very old mammoths is confirming this: that yes, there were multiple lineages, just like there were multiple lineages of humans when there were Neanderthals alive and humans alive at the same time. You know, they were, they were diversified. They probably lived in different environments, were adapted to different habitats. And morphologically, they were distinct. And with the ancient DNA, we were able to confirm this distinctiveness from morphology and say that, yeah, there were multiple species. Well, for you personally, and I, I know you've worked on dozens of different species. I've you know seen your literature, your papers, and you've covered really a breadth of organisms. Is there a particular story that stands out for you that you go, well, this is a really great example of how ancient DNA reshaped the way we think about the modern organism? Well, you know, I think the the one that comes to mind to most people is not one that I personally worked on, but probably the story that ancient DNA is best known for, which is the discovery that our ancestors, the modern homo sapiens, when people left Africa, they encountered Neanderthals and 
bred with them and that everyone who's alive today has some ancestry that leads either back to this admixture event or to different potentially earlier admixture events with other human lineages in Africa or admixture events that happened during the the movement from uh, Eurasia into the far eastern part of the world. I mean, I guess, and that's true now for not only humans, but as we look at ancient DNA and we have all this genomic data, what we're seeing is that a lot of things hybridize. Uh, they run into each other. And if there is not an evolved barrier to reproduction, they reproduce. And those offspring are often have some sort of genetic um, advantage provide that comes into them through this reproduction. Um, one of the most um, famous examples of that is uh, people who live in high altitude Tibet, who have a gene, a version of a gene that they inherited after admixture with Denisovans that provides them an advantage to living in an environment where there is less oxygen in the atmosphere at these high altitudes. And similarly to that, there are wolves today and domestic dogs, the Tibetan Mastiff, who have a gene that allows them to live at high altitude that they inherited from an ancient lineage of wolves that didn't exist. And cattle, there are cattle that live at high altitude in Tibet that inherited a gene that makes it easier for them to survive at high altitude with admixture from local yaks. So this is there's three examples of lots of admixture happening throughout time and some genes providing an adaptive advantage being passed between species because of this admixture that happens. That's really cool. I I, really, I liked in the book how you always refer to the Neanderthals and the what's the other one called the the Denisovans, uh, Denisovans as Denisovans. the Archaic, yeah. as, as the archaic people. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's what people call. The, uh, I don't know. Scientists call them lots of different things, but they were people, right? I mean, they had tools and they had language and they had culture, and just like we did. And you know, we we killed them eventually, or outcompeted them at least, but we made it with them too. So you know, <laughs> yeah, little bits of them live on in some places of the country more than others, I think. But <laughs> I digress. Yeah. Well, you know oh. what? I just to, I'm going to digress here because here's a cool story. <laughs> from this, right? So we all know, because most of us or many of us have done one of these ancestry things, that we have between, everybody has somewhere between 1% and 4% or 2 and 5% Neanderthal-derived ancestry, right? I mean, this is a, did, have you done yours? Oh, yeah, I did mine, yeah. Do you know what your Neanderthal proportion is? I don't know that. I, I was one of the early adopters. I was one of the first ones in, in the 23andMe oh. thing. And so <laughs> I, they probably didn't have much Neanderthal inter integrated data at the time. So, yeah. But I could you take a guess. Back it's on. it's I, probably you pretty high. <laughs> 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 just, just there's we a few a phenotypic things. Family, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a couple of phenotypic uh, traits that suggest that I probably am a little more. <laughs> but, That's so, what well, everybody says. But anyway, here's the cool thing about this, right? We all know that we have this much. What's, what is less well known is that we don't all have the same 2 to 5% Neanderthal. And in fact, if we went around the world and we collected up everybody's bits of Neanderthal ancestry from all the genomes of people alive today, we could put together about 93% of the Neanderthal genome. Like most of it is still circulating among people today. And that's pretty cool, right? But what's even cooler about that is that it tells us that if we really want to know what parts of our 
DNA of our genomes are most important to making us humans rather than Neanderthals or Denisovans, then we should focus on that other 7% because that is the bit, parts of it anyway, that if a human baby inherited that part of the genome from Neanderthals, they didn't survive as humans. So that is where we should look to figure out what it is that makes us human. So I think that's a pretty cool thing that uh, ancient DNA has pointed us to. We don't have the answers yet, obviously, but it's a it's an exciting new avenue of research that's really going to help us understand who we are. Yeah, that was a cool part of the book too, is, you know, what is the, what is this little sliver that actually makes us human separated from Neanderthals? What's the human or the homo sapiens unique genome? Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool stuff. We're speaking <laughs> with Dr. Beth Shapiro. She's a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and we're talking about ancient DNA and the cool things we can learn about today from studying yesterday. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, thank you for calling Grocery Mart. How may I help you? I got to talk to someone about this here bioengineered label. It's on my damn Doritos, and I'm fixing to catch me some autism if it's full of that GMO nonsense. I'm sorry, sir, but that label simply means the product may contain some ingredients that originated from a genetically engineered crop. It's the law that passed a long time ago, and you'll see that label in 2022 a lot. Well, I don't like it. Tinkering with nature is no job for Fauci or the Monsantos. There's probably 5G in my Mountain Dew, and glyphosate's in my Natty Light. Now, what's the story, darling? Well, sir, I guess I'm not sure. I wish there was someone else that could give us some answers. That would be me, Kevin Fulta here. I've put together a program to train customer service professionals and anyone that may have to answer questions about the new bioengineered label. The program is performed live. We work through drills, answer questions, and diffuse the ambiguity around this new mandate. I provide excellent training materials and strategies to help your team confidently field the confusing questions your customers will ultimately have. Worse, we expect to see this simple, unnecessary product label inflame a disinformation campaign. That's going to further confuse consumers. Prepare now. Contact me and we'll book training sessions on how to field questions on the bioengineered label. Inform your consumer verify the confusion around safe food ingredients. For more information, check kevinfolta.com forward slash services. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Beth Shapiro, and she's a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. We're talking about ancient DNA and some of the things we're learning about today from studying the DNA from before. And one of the other parts, one of the things I, I, I learned about, but people who are lacta lactose tolerant or people who can use lactose are actually mutants. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
And not only that, but this mutation has evolved several times independently in different human populations. And almost every time, well, that we know of, because we wouldn't know it if it happened otherwise, this evolves. It goes to really high frequency in these populations, indicating that it provides people with that mutation a pretty big advantage over their evolutionary cousins that, that don't that don't have that mutation. Yeah, that's really cool because you meet so many people today who still do not have, or they have the original allele. Yeah. And I was under the impression that this was probably not a derived characteristic, that this was something that um, was the, that people are losing rather than gaining. And so that, that was the interesting part there. One big uh, part of your book is the role of humans, both as a predator and a protector, right? So what are some of the major changes that occurred, you know, particularly in islands, that as a result of human influence? Yeah, so the when you bring up predator and protector, I, th- I think one of the one of the big things that I wanted to get across in the book is, you know, thinking about where we are today and the choices that we have to make today about how much we are willing to rely on biotechnologies to help us out of the current crises that we're in, whether that's the climate crisis or the agricultural crisis or the biodiversity and extinction crisis. And there are a lot of people who see this as we are at the precipice of a transition from being, you know, the kind of normal lineage, normal species that sort of stands off and just lets everything else get on its way and becoming something that really is starting to get our hands dirty and messing with everything else. But what ancient DNA can tell us and history, and if we go back to time, is that this isn't, we're not standing here at a, at a sudden place where we're suddenly going to start messing with stuff. That in fact, we have been meddling with the plants and animals that we interact with for as long as we've existed as a species. And some of the first evidence of this is, is in the fossil record. You know, we, we talked a little bit about the transition out of Africa of anatomically modern humans. We see from the fossil record that as this happens, we ar- arrive somewhere and coincidentally, there is often an extinction of the megafaunal, native megafaunal species. Big, big animals mostly become extinct at the same time as people turn up. Now, for a long time, there's been an argument. Yes, it's a coincidence. You know, people turn up and things go extinct. But isn't there also rapid climate changes happening at the same time? Isn't it true that these extinctions could just as easily be due to climate changes as they are to people? Well, I, I mean, yes, there is some evidence that in some places there's climate changes happening simultaneously with the first appearance of humans, but that's not true everywhere. And it's especially not true in the very first place that we turn up after leaving Africa, where we start seeing the extinction of megafauna, and that is in Australia. And as you say, in islands, the last places where we turn up. And there is, again, a coincidence in timing in the fossil record of mass extinctions of big animals, but and the but there is no there's no simultaneous climate change. And so it's really from Australia and from later extinctions on islands that we begin to see, you know, what our real role of driving things extinct was. But you know, even this, you know, even this, what we were doing to other species. And and it wasn't because we were hunting only. We also were really changing the habitat, perhaps introducing fire or or taking down trees and and making it harder for other species to find a place to live or something to eat. Right. Um, But none of that was intentional. And 
where we see the very first transition, what I think is the most important transition in our interaction with other things, is in the early record of the first domesticates. So, I mean, it might have been happening, you know, 20, 30,000 years ago. There's some evidence that dogs were domesticated quite a lot earlier, gray wolves domesticated to, to, to dogs. But the evidence from the fossil record that this was happening with things like goats and sheep and cattle is from somewhere between 10 and 15,000 years ago, really centered around the Fertile Crescent, the area of the Levant. And here what we see is that people are realizing that driving their prey species to extinction is not the inevitable consequence of keeping their families fed and beginning to develop new strategies, new deliberate hunting strategies that only take some animals, that take only non-reproductive females or only males, learning about the reproductive cycles, about these animals, learning, becoming becoming herders, becoming farmers rather than just hunters. And this is a huge technological change and innovation that began our transition from maybe something that was more standoffish and normal to a species that is really willing to even necessarily getting our hands dirty and starting to mess with the other species around us. And I think that's another really important point is the role of these kinds of technologies in conservation. And can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how are we using biotechnology to actually do positive things to lessen our impacts on these kinds of areas? Yeah, and I think this is, and I, I like to think of the conservation movement, and really this is the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, as the time that we we went through yet another transition in our interactions with other species. And rather than being just, you know, herders, we decided, and, and you know, this is a difficult thing, because people often think of conservation as being hands-off. Right now, there's this incredible challenge in conservation. It's a this strange um, sort of clash between people who, like Ed Wilson, who say we should wall off half of the planet and leave it for the animals, and others who say, well, that is not only geopolitically impossible and a bit naive, but also won't work, right? Because there isn't any part of this planet that hasn't been meddled with by us. Um, but, but conservation in reality, even from the beginning, was never leaving anything alone. When we started to conserve things, and the in the U.S., the early conservation movement was really about two species, bison and passenger pigeons. And we saved one of them, the bison, but but not the other. Passenger pigeons eventually went extinct, quickly went extinct, in fact. Um, but what, the way we saved them is by taking over every aspect of their lives. We put them in Yellowstone National Park or in zoos. We started to cull them to make sure that their herds weren't bigger than what their what they could actually what we could actually support. Today, we're, we vaccinate them, we protect them from predators, we fence them off, we do all of these things as if they were our domesticated species. And yet we still stand back and, and wonder at them because these are these beautiful wild animals. And it's it kind of sounds strange, but I, I don't think it is. I mean, we are, we've extended our control in the world over everything that exists. And, you know, as you say, now we are, we are again at the precipice of a decision that we have to make, a change in the way that we're going to be interacting with these other species. And that is to the decision about whether we're going to move on and use some of these new technologies. I guess maybe another great example of that would be within rhinoceros. Um, or do you say rhinoceros? <laughs> I think 
rhinoceroses, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. So rhinoceroses. So uh, you, you mentioned, and I didn't know this. You mentioned in the book that they go back fifty million years, and that today, when you look at what's left, the number of species that are left, there's one species of white rhinoceros that there's just two individuals left. Uh, a and mother they're both and a, females, and yes, they're both and female. they're related, yes. So, is is there any chance of you know? I think that's maybe the best place for us to think about the extinction is to look right at the absolute uh, border of existence and, and non-existence. Right? Is, is there a chance that that thing can somehow be cloned or mixed with you know male rhinoceros somehow to uh, yeah. preserve that species? Well, there is an ongoing effort that's part of the San Diego Zoo, the San Diego Frozen Zoo, to see if these technologies can be used to resurrect some of the diversity that's been lost with the loss of these rhinoceroses. Uh, you know, this is a hard, hard problem because rhinoceroses are big animals that we don't know very much about. We don't know much about, you know, their how how to make them reproduce in captivity. Although people are getting better at this, but you know, the the same group uh, at the San Diego Frozen Zoo. Um, were recently involved with this really amazing project, um, which is part of a project sponsored by a nonprofit called Revive and Restore, which is based in Sausalito, where they have um, in their collection um, a couple of different frozen tissue specimens from an animal called a black-footed ferret. So a black-footed ferret is this little predator that lives across the American plains, and it eats prairie dogs. And throughout the 20th century, there was this prairie dog eradication program because prairie dogs were super annoying to farmers and people trying to build infrastructure. And in eradicating prairie dogs, they also eradicated pretty much all of the black-footed ferrets. Black-footed ferrets were one of the original listed endangered species. And there was a captive population that in the 60s and 70s, people were really trying to get off the ground and they couldn't. It failed. The captive breeding population eventually died and they thought black-footed ferrets were extinct. And then in the 80s, a black-footed ferret population was discovered near Matitsi, Wyoming. And this gave U.S. Fish and Wildlife and other stakeholders a chance to try again, see if they could get these black-footed ferrets to breed in captivity. And this time it worked. You know, they'd learned more about how to make it happen. They knew a lot more about black-footed ferret reproductive cycles than rhinoceroses. Bad for rhinoceroses, but good for black-footed ferrets at the moment. Um, and so there were lots of black-footed ferrets that are being made, but there's, there's a problem. There's two problems, actually. First, there was only one population left, and that population was very small. And so inbreeding was a really big problem. In fact, there are only seven founding lineages that are contributing to the black-footed ferret restoration program today. So there are several hundred black-footed ferrets that are alive and released into the wild, but they all descend from seven individuals that were closely related to each other. Um, the other problem is that black-footed ferrets, when they eat a prairie dog, that prairie dog is often infected with sylvatic plague, which has been introduced from Europe. And black-footed ferrets eat the prairie dog and they get plague and they die. So they're highly inbred and they're being killed by the plague and also by canine distemper, which is rampant in their population. But there are there are some solutions in our technologies, and this is why I love this example. So back to the San Diego Zoo, you're wondering where I was going with this. They have frozen tissue specimens from that original captive breeding population. And that population was not as closely related as the seven individuals that were the founders. And so in collaboration with Revive and Restore and the San Diego Frozen Zoo and U.S. Fish and Wildlife and some other partners, they actually were able to, about a year ago, create, clone a black-footed ferret from this 30-year-old 
frozen tissue. And a kit was born. Her name is Elizabeth Ann. And when she reaches reproductive maturity, she will become the eighth founder lineage in this captive breeding program. And she will bring a welcome bit of genetic diversity to that captive breeding program, which is amazing, <laughs> right? So that we could actually do this, reach back in time and resurrect diversity, extinct diversity, and reintroduce it to this population. That's yeah, cool. that's super cool. It is. I, I, I once thought, so we work mostly in strawberries, which are uh, tetraploids or octoploids. And so you have four distinct genomes in this one cell. And I always had this crazy idea that I could somehow ablate three genomes and maybe just pull out a ancestral genome that of course has been acted upon, you know, evolutionarily since, since it was uh, integrated into the polyploid, but maybe we have a strawberry that is alive only in the genome of the extant species. You know, you know what I mean? That this thing doesn't exist anywhere except inside the genetics of this more complex polyploid. Yeah. So the strawberry polyploid, though, is it, it's not a, it's not co total copies of the genome, right? So some of the genomes have been lost because it's not a huge genome, despite being polyploid, right? Right. It was a it's a tiny genome, and that, that's what I was going to mention earlier when you mentioned Illumina. We you know we did the strawberry genome back in two thousand eight, nine, ten, and it was all with Illumina sequencing and four five four. Yeah. And so 454 were the long reads <laughs> mm -hmm. and right. uh, no reference genome, no physical map, and just did it all with de novo assembly and, and then some really good genetics uh, by a guy named Dan Sargent. But, um, but I always thought it was neat because strawberry has all of these uh, separate, you can, you can identify the individual uh, sub genomes yeah. and kind of relate them back to others. And, and so it's, there's something in there that may be alive only in that genome, that complex genome seemed like an idea. It's kind but, of cool to think about, right? Yeah. And, you know, with the thinking about ways that you can manipulate genomes of things to bring out traits that, that, you know, we, we might only see partially or that we might imagine we can bring out. This is, these are other things that these technologies can do. Um, you know, they, I mentioned there was another problem with black-footed ferrets and that's this, that they, they get plague and they die. Um, and there is a potential solution for that too. And it, it doesn't involve, you know, cloning or, or it involves way more what people would think of as more manipulative genetic technologies. The evolutionary cousin of the black-footed ferret, the domestic ferret, is from Europe and co-evolved with plague and is genetically immune to it. And so the, the strategy that this team are using now are to try to figure out what it is about the genome of the domestic ferret that makes domestic ferrets unable to get plague with the intention of then using genetic engineering to transfer that bit of DNA code from the domestic ferret into the genome of the black-footed ferret, essentially creating genetically modified ferrets that are capable of living in their habitat and in encountering plague and not dying from it. So this is really you know, forward thinking about how we can use today's technologies to help preserve a species, you know, protect it from becoming extinct. It's a really cool example. And another one I'm going to use in my class next year, I'm teaching this class next year. And one of the big questions is the ethics of gene editing and that if you could, should you, and does the regulatory climate allow you to do the right thing? Oh, <laughs> and <laughs> well, those are two very different questions. If you could, should you? You know, this is a really important and interesting question. And I, 
I think that, you know, at this point, the, the pace of evolutionary change, of habitat change and climate change to a lot of these species that are just on the brink of extinction is too fast for evolution to keep up. And if we really are going to do whatever it is that we can to maintain a world that is both biodiverse and filled with people, which I think is what we all want to see, right, then we're going to have to stop being so scared about all of this and, and really at least allow ourselves to figure out what we can do in a safe and ethical way. And and just, just saying no to something because we fear it or we think it might be just too risky, but without even really allowing ourselves to evaluate what that means to say something is too risky is, isn't fair. And I do think that we have an obligation to do what we can with our technologies to save species from becoming extinct. And I, I agree. I, I, for me, I kind of, and my famous quotation was, you know, even in humans, I, you, you have the capacity now to eliminate sickle cell disease if you could germline gene edit that. And, but are we in a position where we should be making a decision for six or a hundred generations down the road? Yeah, it's a difficult question. Um, and it's, it becomes much more difficult when you start thinking about germline editing humans than I think other species, because obviously we like to think of ourselves as being born in a situation where we all, there's no there's no premeditated idea of what we should be with our lives. I think this is the reason people really fear gene editing humans is because when you gene edit a human, you're making a decision for that next generation. And we have this deep fear, this con conviction, and I think it's correct that every generation gets to choose for themselves what they want to be. They don't want to be gene edited into a place where they're going to be pushed into some particular role because they were engineered or designed to do something. People are different from our domesticated animals. You know, we, we don't care that, you know, chihuahuas look like a chihuahua and a, a herding dog looks like a herding dog because they were bred by us, engineered for very specific roles. But people are not bred for roles. Right. And this is where this difference comes in, I think. Yeah, that's where you start talking about eugenics and all that creepy stuff. But, there, but there's yeah. a very interesting question about not used for improvement, but for therapeutic reasons. And like, you know, maybe is that kind of the gateway that if you could identify some traits that uh, like sickle cell disease, a good one, or cystic fibrosis, or ones where maybe a single allele dictate the penetrance of that disease, that, does it make sense for us to correct that when we can? And, you know, and rescue the future. And, and, I, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't either. But, you know, the, the, the commission that was formed and then reformed after the, the debacle with the He Jiangqiu, the, the Chinese uh, scientist who edited the, the, those babies. Remember when the twin babies were born, where he had attempted to create the CCR5 mutation in their genomes that would make them not get HIV? But this this commission that was formed after that um, is insistent that if there is any human germline editing or gene editing, that it should be for therapeutic reasons and certainly not for you know cosmetic or aesthetic reasons or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. I think we're it's a big open space, open time right right now for that. It's tough. It's a tough question. Regulation, though, I mean, re regulation for, as you know, gene editing anything is a big mess, right? And different in different parts of the world. And if we think about it from the perspective of gene editing or genetically engineering something for the purposes of conservation, it becomes even trickier. Uh, Bill Powell, um, who is the guy who's running the American chestnut tree program, do you are you familiar with the American chestnut? You should totally yeah, get absolutely. him on your show. Well, he, yeah, he was on episode 10 about five okay. years ago. <laughs> and, and I've had him on since. I know his work really well. 
All right. I'm definitely going back for that one. But that episode, I mean, the stuff that he's going through right now from the regulatory perspective, the, these darling trees that he, he's generated, which is an American chestnut tree that has a gene from wheat that uh, neutralizes the acidity that's produced by the fungus that kills American chestnut trees so that the chestnut trees can coexist with the fungus and come back as a forest. He's being regulated by the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA, right? So it's a, yeah, path. Yeah. <laughs> and still people don't like it. And, and, but it's a what really What is there interesting... not to like about this tree? It's an amazing tree. It, it coexists <laughs> with the fungus. It's a, oh, I'm so, ex- I'm on the list. I'm getting one of those trees as soon as, as soon as I'm allowed. And I love this idea because really, and what he's doing, which makes it even more compelling is he's not creating something that is completely foreign. That's going to, you know, it's going to change agriculture. He's trying to repatriate the Appalachians to the way they were before humans screwed it up. That's right. Yeah. And what's brilliant about the engineering that he's done is this gene, the the tree only needs one copy to be resistant to the fungus. And so it has this one copy of a gene from wheat. You know, we <laughs> we eat wheat all the time, which was a, so it's a wise choice. There's, we clearly don't have any problem eating that one gene from wheat because we eat a ton of it. And if we wanted to eat these American chestnuts, which I do, <laughs> and but he can backbreed then these transgenic trees with all of the tree diversity that's still there, either from the underground roots that are still alive or from these stands of trees that were planted you know, outside of their native range as people moved across the country in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? So um, he can reconstruct all of the diversity of these trees that were there, and they only need one copy of this little gene. And the forest can get back what was a keystone tree. Uh, Really, it'll be fascinating to see what happens to these forests. And it's been really nice to see how much support that program has from, even from, you know, there's um, when they had the public comment period last year from the USDA, there was a comment that was from um, Jim Sneed, who was a tribal member of Cherokee Council, who was just absolutely thrilled with the idea of bringing back this tree that his ancestors had relied on for so many years and praising Bill Powell and the Chestnut Tree Group for doing what they can to become better stewards of the planet. And I feel that very much. You know, I, I think that is potentially the most powerful thing that our new technologies can give to us is that in this in this time of crisis that we're in, they allow us to be better stewards. They allow us to meddle better. We're already meddling, and we've been doing it in a destructive way quite a lot. And we could use these tools. We could harness the power that they give us to make us better stewards of our planet. Wow, your lips to God's ears. I'll tell you, that's... <laughs> That that I mean that is exactly how I I feel too. I think that that we have a moral obligation to use it. And when people say that you know, well, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do it. I think we have to because yeah. we can. And 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 it, it really goes back to the ethics of the user. And so that's really where we should be training our scientists, right? And you know, the nuts and bolts of this are all easy to learn, but. Maybe we should be training scientists strictly in philosophy and ethics to really make sure that they know what they're doing when they choose to use the powerful tools. And, and yeah. It, it, yes, and we have to learn to, you know, that what's important is that people 
are are worried about or scared by technologies that that they don't understand and that is totally understandable right and there's so much misinformation out there about what these tools can do and can't do and are doing that it it obfuscates a normal discussion that people can have we need to be training people and be ourselves better at engaging all of the stakeholders who are going to be involved or affected by the use of these technologies whether it's for agriculture or for conservation which means everybody you know, we have to be much better at reaching out and having a, a real, genuine, open conversation rather than just throwing politics at each other. And and if we don't, if we can't get better at this, then it's to our detriment. It's to global detriment. No, you're exactly right. I I, I can't think of a better way to uh, put a bow on this episode. It was a really, uh, it, really nice way to, to put it together. Uh, it's powerful technology. We're learning a lot about where we were and where we're going. Uh, let me just ask you one last thing. How close are we to an actual (laughs) de-extinction of something like a mammoth? When can I get mine? And here I was thinking that I was going to get through a whole interview without being asked that question. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to say it was in the back of my head the whole time and I was looking for a place to throw it in. And I realized the sand's running through the hourglass here. So I got to Right. Well, you know, my, my first book was called How to Clone a Mammoth. So mm-hmm. I did get asked that question a whole lot when I was talking about it, but still do. Every time you publish a paper with ancient DNA, people are like, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. All kind of cool stuff for the future, blah, blah. Tell me, how long before I get a mammoth? Well, okay. So here's the answer. It depends on what you're willing to call a mammoth. Okay. If you want something that is 100% identical, genetically, behaviorally, physiologically, absolutely identical to a mammoth, you're never going to get that. You're out of luck, right? They're extinct. This is no way of bringing them back. Um, There's way too much that we don't know about all of the intricacies. I mean, even if we could take a cell from an Asian elephant and change all one and a half million differences between Asian elephants and mammoths in that genome of that cell so that it looked like a mammoth genome rather than an Asian elephant genome, even if we could then transform that into an embryo of some variety, and even if we could figure out how to implant that in an Asian elephant surrogate host, we then have to worry about all of the signaling that comes during development. Elephants have a two-year gestation that comes from mom's DNA rather than from the developing embryo that's going to make it more elephant-like. And we don't have the gut microbes of a mammoth. We don't know yet about how important these things are to making us look and act the way we do, but we know that it is important. We don't have that. We don't have the habitat that's there. I mean, everybody that's alive, everything that's alive is more than the sequence of A's and C's and G's and T's that make up its genome. We're a product of that and the environment. And the environment that mammoths lived in is gone. So we're never going to get something back that's exactly a mammoth. If you're willing to say, I would like an elephant that's maybe got some mammoth-derived genes that make it better able to live in the Arctic? Well, you know, there's a new company that was just formed four, a few weeks ago called Colossal that has the, the <laughs> their goal is, is to do this for you. If you look them up on their website, that's what it says they're going to do. And they say six years. I I think that might be a little bit a little bit short. There's a two-year gestation, remember? So that would mean they would have this done in four years. And they're also saying that because of the ethics of using elephants as potential surrogate hosts, they're going to develop an artificial uterus, an external embryo, which doesn't exist right now. So, you know, that's a pretty tight <laughs> timeline for them. It's a you know, cool idea. Yeah, they'll learn a lot in the process, you know, it's going to be and great. Get, but. And their GoFundMe is going to explode. At least they'll fail. We'd be wealthy. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. They're going to make the mammoth fant. 
Yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, I think I'm a I'm a fan. I, you know, those of us who work in using biotechnologies for conservation, the biggest, most common complaint that we get is that this is a zero sum game, and we're sucking up money that would otherwise go to tried and true conservation approaches, which I don't think is true. Right? This isn't a zero sum game, but the existence of this company shows that it definitely isn't. I mean, this is tech money from Silicon Valley that's going into you know, developing new technologies for conservation, I think this is a huge win. And maybe they're not going to make an elephant or a mammoth elephant or whatever they're going to call their cold adapted elephant. But as they're doing stuff, they're going to learn a ton about using these technologies for conservation, about the how do we do this for organisms that aren't normal lab organisms? How do we sequence genomes and compare them and determine what genes map to what ways that something looks or acts. We, we know so little in that realm that it's really difficult for us to apply these technologies to conservation. And this is a win. This is money that hasn't been in conservation before that is going to bring us new approaches and new tools that we desperately need. So that's a very long answer to how long to a mammoth. And I guess the answer is, um, I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me today. Dr. Beth Shapiro, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It was fun. Oh, and we almost forgot to mention your Twitter feed. People should follow you at Bones and Bugs. All one word, Bones and Bugs. It's a good follow. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Share your thoughts in the comments section of the place you consume media. It matters. It makes a big difference. And uh, hope that you uh, do that. Um, we have, <laughs> I was reading in the reviews and one of them has three stars, all five stars. There's a three star because I talked about, I, I badmouth UFO, UFOs and the study of ufology. So there you go. Can't please everybody. But thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.